So today I want to talk about love. I want to talk about love. We have been doing a little series looking, um, and we're on the third set time of, of that series, uh, looking at Romans chapter 12. And Andrew entitled this series, Orthopraxy, which if you're not a Christian, you have no idea what that means. And even if you are a Christian, you may or may not have any idea what that means. Orthopraxy is about the right practices. We say a, a church is kind of defined or should be defined by the right beliefs, what you might have heard described as orthodoxy, and orthopraxy, the right practices. I want to show you this morning that at the very center of what it means to be, I don't even know how to make it into an adjective, to be a community that, that follows this orthopraxy is to be defined by love. To be a body infused with the love of Christ. If you were with us the last couple of weeks, we, we saw this, this picture of a body. We said every, every, the, the church is a body, each person with their own gifts to build up the body. Well, in a sense, I want you to take that picture and say, the love of Christ is like the blood that pulsates all around that body. The the love of Christ is essentially what makes that body work together. So we're going to look at Romans 12. Um, I want to read you the first few verses, and then we're going to duck down. The verses we're going to look at tonight today are verse 9 to 13. So verse 1 to 3. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then jump down to verse 9, and this is the ver- these are the verses we're going to look at. Let love be genuine. Abhor, that means hate, what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful, do not be slow in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So all of this, the whole passage we're looking at is defined by that central verse at the beginning, let love be genuine. Now the problem is when we talk about a community that is infused with the love of Christ, that is defined by a, by a love, we are, we are hindered. Because that word love is really badly understood in our culture. And we need to redefine what we mean by love. You think about what, what passes for love in our culture. Well, you might say tolerance. I mean, I think we've, we have something of a kind of bastardized version of love in tolerance that says what it means to love someone is to affirm them and to affirm their identity and the practices they engage in. I mean, actually, what you've got to see is that's not very loving at all. That doesn't really take you much love to say, you do you. That's the very different definition of passivity. There's no love really required in tolerance. Or perhaps we've seen the, the kind of inward version of love in the sense that, uh, you know, we talk a lot in our culture of loving yourself. Self-care in the name of love. In a sense, that's probably just an excuse for narcissism. I'm not saying it's totally wrong concept, but, you know... <laughs> But, but I am saying that we have a, such a twisted version of love operating in our culture. 
Even, I think, from a Christian perspective, when we think about what does it mean to love, if I call you to love one another as a community, you probably think it means smiling at people at church or, be, or nodding politely or being friendly or trying to have a few conversations with people. Not wrong, but actually I want to show you that the love that Paul has in mind is much bigger than that. Much more than a... In fact, that whole idea is too superficial. This first part of the, uh, the passage, where it says, let love be genuine, really almost, um, in, in li- if it was literally translated, would be, let love not be hypocritical. It's speaking of, of the hypocrites, the, the actors in the, in the Roman amphitheaters or the Greek um, equivalent, uh, where, the, where the actors would have masks, and they'd be hypocrites, and they would just have a, a, a veneer, they'd be, they'd be, the mask would be on the front, and that's what they'd be showing saying, don't let your love just be superficial. Don't let your love just be a mask. No, you need genuine love. Actually, we really need to redefine what that love means. See, this word love, it actually is not uh, the typical word that is used for love in, in the culture at the time. Paul felt almost a need to kind of redefine love he took a new word, agape, that isn't really, wasn't really in kind of general circulation until the third century, until Christianity had kind of exploded on the Roman Empire. And I think his choice of this word agape is not um, coincidence. He's choosing a new word because he's almost saying, forget what you've understood about what love is. Let me show you what love really is. Let me redefine love for you. And he redefines love really by the love of Christ. It's no coincidence, this same word for love is the same word he uses all the way through, well, particularly, I want to draw your attention to this, Romans chapter 5, when he talks about the love of Christ being poured into our hearts. He's speaking not about a kind of superficial love, he's saying, no, actually, you've been, you've been changed by the love of Christ that has been poured into you, that has gone deep inside you, and has changed you. So it can't be this mask, no, this has changed who you are. This, is, this must shape how we relate to each other as a community. He's saying, you need to see what genuine love looks like. And I think there's an analogy here that really explains this. Because what passes for love in our culture, what passes for love in that culture, was a kind of form of love. It showed some resemblance to love, but it wasn't the real thing. And I think the way you could describe it is a little bit like if I invited you over to my house for some pasta with tomato sauce. I'm a little bit Italian, quarter Italian, so I like to make a nice tomato sauce. And if I said to you, come over to my house, and I, and I took a can of tomatoes and just poured it in the pot, okay, and, and just heated up the tomatoes, um, that, that would ostensibly be some kind of tomato sauce. Technically, it is tomatoes, and I put it with pasta, it becomes sauce, okay? That's tomato sauce. If, on the other hand, I made, you know, cut my onions up, cut my garlic in, you know, let that simmer away, then add, then add some tomatoes, perhaps some fresh tomatoes, just to give it a little bit of extra flavour, add some tomato puree, maybe bacon, because bacon always makes things taste better. <laughs> and that's the real thing. That's the genuine tomato sauce, not this rubbish, tasteless equivalent. And I think that's kind of what Paul's saying. So don't settle for this kind of cheap, fake love. No, you need the genuine love. And how will we know what genuine love is? We look to the person of Christ. See, these, this passage, this set of instructions, is not just a random list of instructions. No, actually, this is a picture of, the, of Christ's love for the church. Go through this list, you'll see. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. 
It's saying love is not just a kind of generic positivity or warmth. Think about Christ's blazing heart, his love for the Father, his love for the church, his love for what is holy and what is good, and his hatred of evil. Saying his love is not just a warm, general sense of twee niceness. No, this is a morally trained love. Or see, it goes on, it talks about brotherly affection. Well, Christ himself is our older brother who's drawn us in, and if you're a Christian, has brought you into the family of God. It talks about honor. Think about how Christ honored those he interacted with, how he honored the woman who'd been bleeding for years, how he honored the leper by touching them, how he honored the adulterous woman and embraced her and welcomed her into the family. Christ honored those who were shamed. He showed us what, what it means to honor someone. Or think about, do not be slothful in zeal. In verse 11, it speaks of a zealousness, a passion. Think about Christ's passion and zeal for the Father's glory, for his own glory. Or think about generosity. It talks about contributing to the needs of the saints. Well, Christ, of course, showed us incredible generosity when he gave his life on the cross so that we might be reconciled to the living God. Even in this list of imperatives, even in this kind of a set of instructions, we are reminded of the great glorious gospel that Paul has just spent the last 11 chapters unpacking. Even in the instructions that he's giving us, he's reminding us of the great love that we have received, that has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, now let that love shape who you are. Now that you've received it, now that that's been poured into your hearts, let that love transform us as a community. This is a communal word. And why? Why is this so important? Well, a couple of reasons. One, it's the authenticating mark that we're really a church. It's at the very center of what it means to, be, to, to live rightly, to be formed correctly as a community. If you're in a church where there's no love, when there's no sense of affection, no sense of generosity or hospitality, you might actually question whether that's really a church. Or you certainly say they're living far beneath the vision of what Christ has for them as a community. So one, it's just, this is, this is how you know it's real. You know, you might, like, fool's gold or gold. How do you test whether it's right and you've got to do certain things to it? Well, if you see a church, you say, is love present? That's one of the tests of whether it's an authentic community following Christ. But more than that, I think it says, what you've got to see is Christ embodies love. Thomas Goodwin said, Christ is love covered over in flesh. This Puritan writer in the 1500s, Christ is love covered over in flesh. In Christ, we have seen the love of God and we, the body of Christ, are called to embody his love. We are called to visibly, tangibly show the world Christ's love in our, in our life together as a community. This is not just the proof that we really are the church. This is the most powerful apologetic the most powerful way of reaching the world. Think about when you say, how will they know this love that we preach about? How will they know this truth that Christ died for their sins, that he invites them into a relationship with him? How will the world know that? If you're not a Christian, how will you know that's true? And I would argue, you will know that's true. Yes, we can talk about apologetics and arguments and showing you the truthfulness of the resurrection, and I love that stuff. But actually, perhaps even more than that, 
The church is meant to be the proof that this love that we've talked about in Christ's willingness to die for us is not just some pipe dream, it's not just some figment of our imagination, but it's real. That in our relationships together, we will show the reality of Christ's love. It's the, the church is, as one sociologist would describe it, the plausibility structure. The church is the, the kind of proof that this love is not just an idea that we happen to talk about or sing about, but it's real. And they will see that in our relationships together. So this matters. I want to go through the six instructions that Paul gives, or we'll, we'll break it into six instructions, and show you both what it means to love each other as Christ calls us to, and also how, how this is possible. Because as you'll see, this is not normal. There's nothing normal about this love. Our, our, our vision of love in our world is often so passive towards those people who are different to us, or so passive towards others. No, this is devotion to others. It's so partial, so in a sense of kind of, we're so often normal, uh, like to love certain people, but not others. But no, this is about honoring all. So this love is anything but normal. And so we want to show you what it is, but how it's possible. So first of all, then, we see familial devotion. It says you are to be devoted to each other because you are a family. You are to be devoted to each other because you are a family That first verse in verse 10, that first kind of sub-instruction, love one another with brotherly affection. Or in the NIV it it says, be devoted to each other. See, what you've got here is two words that really talk about family. That sense of be devoted to one another, it's using a word that um, is similarly used for uh, the way a parent would be devoted to their child. Some of you are parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That other word, that brotherly affection, it speaks of, the word is Philadelphia. It's, it's, it's a speaking of, a, of a, a kinship, a brotherly affection. So you take these two words together, and the first thing that Paul wants you to see, which I think you need to see to make sense of everything else that comes from this, is we are a family. Now the problem is when I say that to you, it, it, it will mean very little to you, because that understanding of being a family has been completely ruined in our culture, because you might say you get, you know, you join a new company and they say, Welcome to the family. It's got 10,000 people. There's no sense of fraternal affection. There's no sense of loyalty to you. If you don't perform, you're out. There's no sense that doesn't really feel much like a family. Even sometimes you get a product, you're going to say, Welcome to the O2 family. So there's much, this, this idea of family has been kind of ruined for us in that way. The other way I think we find it hard to understand is because many of us come from tight nuclear families. We have great affection for our parents or our, our, our immediate brothers and sisters. And, and you kind of say, well, okay, I get what that is, but how on earth am I meant to do that for the church? And then at times this almost feels a bit confusing. Am I meant to just try and be friends with everyone? Am I trying to go around and build deep relationships with everyone in the church? That just feels impossible. So what do we mean by family? I think the picture you have to have in your mind is of a clan. A clan. Think about my big fat Greek wedding. Any of those big families you've got there. You've got aunts and uncles and cousins. And, and it's, it's big. There's some people you know well. Some people you know less well. But there's a sense of affection. There's a sense of kind of ownership. But yeah, we're the... In, where my uh, mum's from in Italy, we're the belly family. You know, there's, it means something to be a belly. We're not like the anti-Nazis. We're not like those people. We're, there's a sense of tribal loyalty. There's a sense of affection, of kinship. Of clan, the um, the Harvard um, evolutionary theorist uh, Joseph Henrich uh, wrote uh, the weirdest people in the world. It's one of the top books of the last couple of years, um, and in it he describes how why are people of Western Europe and um, I think of America as uh, so unusual. He describes them as Western, educated, industrialized, rich, 
democratic. And he goes on to talk about the kind of unique evolution that, the, that Protestantism kind of brought about in, in society around those cultures that were changed by Protestantism over the last 500 years. And what's fascinating is one of the things he describes is, you know, you can imagine in pre-modern societies you've got lots of cousins marrying each other. And actually, ironically, that is the case in Italy. And there's a sense of... Um, a kind of big, wide family. He's saying, actually, the West looked different to that. They didn't have these kind of... They, the church outlawed cousin marriage. They said, it's not okay to marry your cousins. Why? Or how is that possible? Because the church became that sense of clan, that sense of community, that wider support network. It says, you're, when you come on Sunday, it means you're not a group of strangers. This is your clan. This is your people. This is where you belong. What does that mean? Well, it means you have a certain sense of affinity that trumps every other type of affinity. Let me ask you a question. Imagine for yourself a moment uh, meeting someone who went to the same school as you, maybe went to the same college as you, uh, went, came from your same country and, um, and did a similar job to you, but doesn't share your faith in Christ. And then put on the other side someone who comes from a different country, went to a different school, different college, and different job, but has a, has a faith in Christ. And then you meet those two people you say, which do you have a greater sense of affinity with? Who is, who is your brother, so to speak? Who is your, 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 your uh, kin in that moment? Actually, this says the person who follows Christ. Even if they have nothing else in common with you, because they have a shared faith in Christ, because they have a shared identity in Christ, that trumps everything else. Why? Because this is the primary identity marker of your life. This is the thing that shapes your life more than what job you do, more, more than what college you went to, or whatever else it is that you might be tempted to define yourself by. This says, no, your primary identity is your faith in Christ, your love for him. And that trumps everything. It means when someone comes through that door and they're, and they're a brother in Christ, even if they have everything else different to you, you say, welcome, brother. Think about how you might go to a, you know, I, I, um, you go to, uh, actually this happened to me a few years ago. I, I did some research and, and happened to find I had a cousin uh, at uni at the same time. We, we're from the same family. We never, I, it was like very, very distant cousin from uh, the Italian connection. Sorry to keep going on about that this afternoon, <laughs> uh, this morning. Um, but the, uh, you know, I went and I, and, and I happened, to, uh, happened to go back to uni and uh, walked into my friend's house, was having me over dinner, and you never guessed the guy. Just after, the day after I found out that he was my cousin, I met, met him in this house. There were only three people, he was one of them. And um, he, he turned out he's actually training for ministry and he's a, another fellow believer in Christ, which is amazing. But the point is, I said, hello, you're my cousin. And I told him all the story of his life story. First he thought I was a stalker, then he, then, <laughs> then he was convinced. My point is, when you meet one of your family members, maybe someone you never met, there's a sense of affinity, a sense of, yes, hi, nice to meet you. That's a sense of how we should feel when we meet a brother or sister in Christ. It means affinity. It means new family. Isn't this exactly what the world is longing for? Isn't this what our city is crying out for? As we live in a world of isolation where we use technology or professionals to suit our needs. Technology, you know, get an app, deliver my food or whatever else. Or, or if maybe I'm struggling with depression, I go to a professional and, and sort that out. I'm not saying that's not wrong, but what I'm saying is we've got into so many ha- patterns and habits that only make sense if we live outside of community. We're saying we've found something far richer Don't settle for the worldly version of individualism. Come and be part of the family. But it also says we have a commitment to one another, a sense of responsibility to one another. Think about if your mum invites you over for Sunday lunch and then 10 minutes before you're meant to be there, you message her and say, sorry, I can't be there tonight. Can't be there, mum. How would your mum feel? Not very good, I imagine. There's a sense of commitment to one another that comes with a sense of affinity. 
Because you don't flake out of relationships in the body of Christ. We have a commitment to one another. It means we have a commitment to Sundays. We want to try and be here as much as possible because this is the time we've set aside to form these relationships, to become this family. It means we have a commitment to our life group, to those relationships. It means, by the way, that, that sometimes this will involve an intentionality that doesn't feel easy. There's a tendency when you think of love just to imagine that it's mostly kind of, oh yeah, I like that person, I'll spend time with them. No, I think implicit in this idea is that you will be intentional sometimes to love the person when, they don't, when you don't like them, when you don't get on with them. That's the real measure of love, surely. When at that moment you say, no, but this is my brother, this is my sister, I'm going to push into them. Even though this is a bit weird, even though I, I find them a bit annoying or whatever, I'm going to love them. That is the test whether you've really understood this, brothers and sisters. But it also speaks of familial, a familial joy and affection. Think of the word brotherly affection. Think about how that feels. You go home to be with your brother. It's not handshakes and you know, formal nods. It's hugs and nipple cripples and noogies or whatever else it is. It speaks of a familiarity and a friendship. Let's not take ourselves too seriously here, brothers and sisters. We are a family. Second of all, we're honoring each other. This is more than simply affection. We honor and respect and celebrate each other. Notice the next part of the verse in verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. Those of us who come from very Western cultures will have very little traction on this concept because it's not language we use very often in our culture. What does it mean to honor someone? Well, it means to acknowledge someone's intrinsic worth, to acknowledge their dignity, and to celebrate their contribution. To honor them, to recognize, to respect them, and to celebrate their contribution. And we're pretty rubbish at this. Let me give you a few reasons why we're pretty rubbish at this. One, because we've been taught in a culture to be suspicious of those in authority and those perhaps who in some sense are over us. Think about um, in chapter 2, I think it's two, Second Timothy, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I'm not just saying that because I'm an elder who labors in preaching and teaching, but my point is, that feels alien to us. Showing someone double honor, doesn't that feel, that feels a bit like, that, that jars with us in some way, because actually honor is not something we really show each other in this culture. Actually, much often it speaks of how quick we are to kind of denigrate others, denigrate others' contribution, and instead to lift up, to kind of call out for others to honor us, rather than to go around honoring others. Another way I think we really rubbish at this is we disrespect certain people. We show partiality. There's a sense to which in this, in this instruction to, honor, to, to outdo one another in honor that we are to honor everybody. And yet we so often honor certain people and not others. The sin of partiality. In James, he talks about how, you, how do you respond when a rich man comes in versus a poor man. He's saying if you, and, and essentially he's challenging them and saying you're, you can't show preference to the rich man over the poor man. How often it is that we honor certain people and not others. Just think about how Christ interacted with people. Think about how he showed radical dignity to those who were outsiders, those who were shamed. He welcomed them in. So what does this look like then for us as a family? How will we embody this? Well, I think it starts with a kind of um, very opposite of the self-promotion of our culture. It's a kind of other promotion. I want you to imagine for yourself a football team and in that football team, instead of everyone kind of jostling for position and talking about, oh, did you see my goal? Did you see my X? Or did you, you know, celebrating their own contribution? 
we're all fighting for who will be named the player of the year. No, it's the opposite. It's saying, actually, no, I'm going to go around relentlessly trying to celebrate the contributions of, my bro- of the rest of the team. And instead of fighting Jocelyn to kind of be, be the best, it's quite the opposite. They're jostling to say, no, did you see that? But wait, did you see his contribution? Did you see what she did? There's a sense of radical honouring and valuing the contributions of others. Running exactly the opposite spirit to how many of your workplaces function. You know, all the oh-so-subtle email that gets sent round, celebrating the contribution of the team, but really celebrating your own contribution. Or, the, you know, there's so many different dynamics where we're really fundamentally fighting for glory, fighting for honour. And this says, no, do the opposite of that. Honour others. Celebrate them. It means celebrating the less impressive parts of the body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says, the parts we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. We celebrate every part of the body, the mucous membrane, as Andrew was talking about, and all the other little, the weird bits. Think about, those of you who might have seen Adam's family, you know, they have Uncle Fester in that family, and everybody else, and you know, he's going around the house blowing things up, and they kind of just laugh and say, that's Fester. He's kind of weird and eccentric, but there's a kind of celebration of him. I think that's what it means to be a family. We're not a professional body where we're ranking each other's contributions and we're looking for who's the best. No, we're honouring every single part of the family, every part of the body. I remember this when I was part of a church that was a church plant and a community of people came in to an estate in South London and and they moved in. There were only a few people left. There were about six old ladies in this church that essentially was, was dying and basically dead before the church plant came in. And it would have been so easy for this church planting team to come in and kind of be like, yeah, move to the side, old ladies. You're not relevant anymore. The big guys, the big guns have come and we've come to reach this estate and bring Christ to it. And every, you know, come out of a kind of sense of zeal. But that's precisely the opposite of how we functioned. There was an honoring of these women, an honoring of the contribution they'd had, an honoring of the fact that they had prayed for years and kept this church going and kept it alive before the team came in. And all the way through, they were never pushed to the side. All all the time I was at that church, there was a sense of honouring their contribution. It's countercultural. It looks different to the world. And how do we do this? How are we liberated to do this? Well, we're not driven by ego. The reason why you have a world full of people who are seeking their own glory and to celebrate themselves is because they are living for the acclaim and the approval of others or for their own, own, uh, to meet their own. Uh, vision of themselves and we say no we have a radical gospel that liberates us from having to puff ourselves up and prove ourselves and to justify our existence because we say we're already loved by Christ he already died for us <laughs> he already met every need in one sense in his death and his love for us we no longer need to go around trying to puff ourselves up we recognize that each one of us has a contribution to make it's not a denial of gifts or even different size of gifts in some sense But we don't need to prove ourselves. We don't need the approval of the crowd because we already have the approval of our Father in heaven. We're grateful to be part of the body and to use the gifts we've been given. So the gospel liberates us to a self-forgetfulness. And when we have that self-forgetfulness, when we're no longer worried what people think of us, we're able to go around liberally honoring and celebrating others. I think that's so unusual, so different to the rest of the world. Thirdly, passionate. So we talked about Uh, affection, brotherly love, honouring one another with passionate. This is not an introverted or humanistic um, decision to love each other. This is love full of passion and zeal for the Lord. And it is that shared zeal for the Lord that binds us together. 
See in verse 11, it says, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, uh, serve the Lord. It's, what is he talking about? He's talking about passion for the Lord. That, verse, uh, that middle part of verse 11, be fervent in spirit, is a picture of kind of bubbling over, fizzing up, a sense of like zeal, passion, enthusiasm. Spirit brought probably. Probably a sense of, of hunger for God. Probably a sense of desire for him. Probably a sense of burning loyalty to him. This is a passionate love. You cannot say you love Christ if you never feel a sense of passion and desire for him. Sure, we all have different emotional wiring and some of us are going to feel passion differently than others. We express our passion differently, no doubt. But passion is part of what it means to love Christ. But you've got to ask yourself, why is this verse here? Surely this is about loving the body and suddenly he's talking about love for God. What's the connection? If you really love God, then you'll really love people. And it's that love for God that binds us together. What I'm saying is Christian community is more like a rugby team than a cuddle party. You may never have heard of cuddle parties. I'm not just looking around the room, no no major familiarity here. (laughs) To to the great sadness of Western culture has reached the point where we now, there are organized cuddle parties where you can go and you can basically just cuddle up strangers. It doesn't, I'm led to believe it doesn't have a sexual element to it, but it is just like you go and cuddle people. (laughs) I would encourage you to look it up, but I don't think that'd be helpful for you. Let me just say that this exists and this is tragic and sad and, and part of, and where we've got to in our society. But apart from being tragic and sad, it's also deeply self-indulgent. You go to a cuddle party to meet your needs for touch. You all decide together, let's all go and meet our needs. It's a kind of introverted kind of focus on each other. But the Christian community is the opposite of that. It's saying we have one abiding passion and love together that binds us together. We're not looking at each other, just gazing at each other. I love you. I love you. You're amazing. No, we have a love for Christ A binding affection that draws us together, like a rugby team, literally drawn together in pursuit of that goal. Our love must be vertical as well as horizontal. In fact, I'd go as far to say as, if you really love God, you'll really love his church. And if you lack this love for your brothers and sisters, actually that may be a suggestion that you have a a, a vertical problem, that you don't really love God you might think it's the opposite. You might think, well, I don't, I don't really love my brothers and sisters. I should probably just go love God a little bit less and love my brothers and sisters a little bit more. I kind of need to balance things out. No, quite the opposite. Actually, as you love God, as you stir up that passion and fervor and hunger for God, you will love his church. Why? Because as you love Christ, his loves become your loves. He shapes your affections. You learn to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And what does he love? He loves his church. He loves his bride. He died for her. He wants to be united. He he died to unite himself to his bride and will one day present her in all her glory and splendor and majesty. If you love Christ, you must love his church. And if you don't love his church, then you might want to ask yourself whether you really love Christ. We love what he loves. So that means your passion matters. Notice, by the way, in this verse, it says, be fervent in spirit. There's an instruction there, an imperative there. What it says is, good news, if you don't feel passion, you can stir it up. So, you know, you're not just at the mercy of your emotions. You're not, you're not just saying, oh, I've got a really cold heart and I really don't love Christ and there's nothing I can do about it. No, actually, brothers and sisters, you can stir, you can stir up this zeal. You can take time to dwell in the presence of God. You take time to read his promises. Take time to immerse yourself in his steadfast love. Perhaps it's no coincidence that the next verse talks about being persistent in prayer. Because you can stir up your passion. Why? Well, it matters. Of course, it matters that you love Christ. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. But, but why else? Because your passion serves your brothers and sisters. As we're this rugby team running together with love for Christ, as you display passion for Christ, that is one of the best gifts you can give your brothers and sisters. You know, we think about all the practical gifts. Actually, as you show a passion and love for Christ, that's infectious. That will help each other. That's why we gather together, because that passion and enthusiasm draws each other into Christ. So be fervent in spirit. Pray, spend time with God, speak to your heart, speak to that coldness, do all the things you need to do to grow that passion so that actually that passion will serve your brothers and sisters. Fourthly, superhuman persistence. This is not emotionalism. Yes, it has an emotional element, but genuine love is persistent. We can persist in love because we have an enduring hope. Verse 12 says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. All these three are really just speaking of that persistence and endurance. Be patient in tribulation. That's what a picture of enduring through trials. Tribulation, like the difficult things in your life. Be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope. It's saying you have a joy that comes from a hope that you have because of what Christ has done for you and where you're going to be spending eternity with him. It speaks of an endurance. What I wanted to suggest to you very simply is that real love is enduring. Think about if you're a parent. Think about if this, if you have a, a deep friendship. I was reading about uh, John Newton and a guy called William Cowper Cooper. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. He was a poet. He struggled with depression for years. And John Newton, Matt, the uh, man who wrote Amazing Grace, uh, just spent years and years loving his brother, writing letters to him, encouraging him. As this poet really struggled with depression and suicide and all sorts of things, he was just ongoing showing him the love of Christ and, and drawing him back to God. That is what love really looks like. It's enduring. Love is passion, but your love will be vindicated by your endurance through trials. Difficulties will prove the, lo- the reality of your love. Some of you may make the mistake of coming to Christ for a set of rewards, a set of blessings. This says, no, don't come to Christ for his blessings. Christ will put you through all sorts of different situations that will refine your heart to say you cannot come to him for anything else except him. Not for the blessings, because there'll be times when you won't have those things. Not for anything else that you think, if I come to Christ, then maybe I'll get a spouse, or maybe he'll... No, none of that. Your love will be proved because you say, it is Christ alone who satisfies my heart. That is the love that Christ is looking for. But it means we're called to be persistent with one another. It means we're we're called to be long-suffering in our relationships. When When we hurt each other, which we will... We're called to persevere towards unity. And I'm so excited to unpack what unity and reconciliation looks like next week. This is a call to perseverance together. Not to be like a family. You know, maybe if I ask you, how, uh, do, you um, do you like your brother? Do you, you know, whatever. To some extent, when I ask you that kind of question, do you like your brother or whatever? Or do, is, he a, is he a good friend? To some of you, that almost like, sound like a, per, a weird question. Because when you think about a sibling, you don't immediately kind of rank them in your friendship you just say they're my brother I love them I've got solidarity with them whether I get on really well with them or don't get on well with them and that's I think something of what it means to persevere in love but the difference here is this is showing us that we can be persistent both in loving Christ and loving our neighbor not because of anything else not not a call to kind of grim just summon up the energy and love for inside yourself no the persistence you need comes for the enduring hope that you have You can be steadfast in your love for one another because we have received a steadfast love. We have received a hope that means that our great joy in life is not for whether people like us or not. 
It's not based on whether you reciprocate my friendship. It's not based on whether I'm really at the center of community or whether no one likes me. My love, that love I have from Christ, is the, is the basis for my joy in life. And that means that frees me to love others, even when I don't feel like they love me. So there's a superhuman persistence because we have received a superhuman love from Christ. Fifthly, generosity. The love that we have for each other must be tangibly expressed. It cannot be mere sentiment. We must share our lives and meet each other's needs. Verse 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints. Contribute to the needs of the saints. I think we really struggle with this in Western culture, in central London. Because for a lot of reasons, individualism, we think about our own needs, we don't think about others. Self-sufficiency. Most, most of us think, well, most of the other people in this community are financially self-sufficient. They don't really... Who, who are the poor among me that I can, I can help to support? First of all, that's just not true. But second of all, I think that, that is something that goes through our heads. Maybe you think there's, a, there's an app for that. You maybe think, well, I, I know if someone's got a problem, they can, they can look for my, their needs to be met through some other way. We see no needs. But yet we see in the New Testament that love must be practical. In James chapter 2, it says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. How can you say you love someone when you see them in need and say, best wishes, good luck, see you later? says, love, if it's really genuine, will be tangibly expressed. But note, by the way, this verse says, contribute to their needs. I actually think if we over-focus on financial generosity here, we're missing the wider point here. This speaks about meeting the needs of your brothers and sisters. This speaks of a posture of generosity, not necessarily financially. Think about what the needs of the people around you are. One person put it to me on Friday, we are financially self-sufficient, but relationally isolated. Isn't that the condition of many people in central London? It's not that they have the great financial need. What they need is relationships. What they need, I think of a time when someone um, in our church, someone else had joined our church, was a new student, in the midst of lockdown, feeling quite isolated, and I, I emailed someone in our church and said, would you mind just going for a walk with them? And they didn't know them. They had no, nothing to gain from that. And they just said, yeah, of course, I'll go. Didn't, didn't give them a second thought about it. They said, yeah, I'll go meet her relational needs. That's exactly the kind of, what I'm talking about is a posture of wanting to meet the needs of those around you. A posture of pouring yourself out of generosity for others. Some of us are time poor. Maybe you're a new parent or have an intense job. Think, how can I bless that person with my time? Some of you are relationally isolated. Some of you struggling with mental health, anxiety or depression. Well, often when someone's experiencing something like depression, yes, there's professional help, but actually just by being there and loving them and walking with them and praying with them and and just keep knocking on the door and opening the door and keeping them connected with the family, that's massive. That's what it means, means to meet the needs of your brothers and sisters. We might not have financial needs, but we do have needs. So what is this? Well, it's a front footedness. It's not passivity. Passivity is the great enemy of love, as far as I can tell. It's a readiness to step in to help our brothers. It means my brother's problem is kind of my problem. 
Think about this. I was talking to someone and uh, their sister had lost their job or they basically were in a financial need such that they kind of had about a three-week period where they needed some money to pay the rent before their next job kicked in and they got a new paycheck. Um, And... And the brother didn't think a second, didn't give it a second thought. Just said, of course. Just said, well, look, I can lend you the money. I, I can give you a few thousand pounds and you'll give it back to me in a few weeks' time. That didn't even cross his mind. There's a sense of your problem is kind of my problem. Not, it's not my problem. I'm not, I'm not running around trying to meet everybody's need. and try, it's not, I'm not making it identical with my problem. There's only so much you can help people, etc. But actually, your problem is kind of my problem because you're my brother. It means a front-footedness because opportunities to do this will rarely come to you. We live in a culture where people don't really admit need. You have to be front-footed to, to look for those needs. You have to be in relationship with people so that you know what needs they have so that you can push in and look to meet those needs. And it means a willingness to sacrifice. This will necessarily mean a sacrifice in some way in your life. How do we do this? Well, we know that because our, my needs are met in Christ... He has, met, he has satisfied my deepest longings. I can pour myself out for my brothers and sisters. Finally, hospitality. There's a great danger that this love is a very introverted love. That we, that we, put, that we prize a lot of value in loving our brothers and sisters. But we forget this command to hospitality. To love the stranger. To look out. The, the great It's so amazing that Paul chooses this as his final instruction because in a way it kind of makes sense of everything else. If you say the community is called to embody the love of Christ, how can I show the love of Christ to my friends and neighbours? I draw them into that. Hospitality is about drawing others into this great body of love. Hospitality is not um, making having your friends over for dinner. That is not what hospitality is. That may be part of, at a stretch, it may be part of it. Really, what hospitality is, is an attitude and a posture of welcoming in the stranger. And, you know, it's fascinating that hospitality is so high in the New Testament. It's a requirement of those who are called to be elders. It's, it's an expectation that if you are an elder in the body of Christ, remember that elders are meant to be a picture of what it means to follow Christ, you will be hospitable. You'll be one who draws others in, who invites others in, and shows them the love of Christ. Of course, hospitality is the very definition of the gospel. When you do hospitality, when you welcome someone into your home, where you invite a stranger into your house, have dinner with them, whatever, that is a definition, a demonstration of the gospel. Hospitality is so close to the heart of God because it's a picture of the gospel. Christ came for those who are strangers, those who are far off, and drew us in. In a sense, you are only a follower of Christ because of God's hospitality. God's invitation to the stranger to draw you into the family. And that is what we are called to then demonstrate. That same posture of welcoming the outsider, of drawing them in, inviting them into our home so that they may taste and see the love of God. As over your meal, over your table, as you have dinner with maybe strangers at church, no bad place to start, but actually I think it goes wider than that. Having your colleagues over dinner, having your neighbours over dinner and showing them the love that exists within the household of God. Either showing them literally your household or perhaps with inviting them into community, inviting them into your life group, inviting them in to see the love that exists. Because when they see that love, they will say, that is not normal. And they will, be point, they will see the beauty of Christ displayed in our relationships together. Of course, this is hard. We live in a, what is an inhospitable culture. I think we, we live, many of us live in shared houses. City life means we all live in shoeboxes. Um, 
it feels pretty weird. That's the point. <laughs> the challenge, like some of you would say, I couldn't have my colleagues over for dinner. That's just weird. Like how would they ever think? That, that, that's the point. The hospitality is meant to look loving. It's meant to look outrageous. It's meant to look different because we, ser- we have a different love in us that is postured towards the outsider. Think about how Christ welcomes in the outsider and draws them into family. So too, you must welcome in the outsider into the family of God. That is our privilege and responsibility. I think hospitality is the vehicle for mission in our city. If you think about reaching your colleagues or reaching your friends or reaching your neighbours, the idea of just having a snatched gospel conversation over the water cooler or over, you know, somehow you meet with your neighbours. I don't know how that would happen, but you know what I mean? Imagine, this, it's relatively implausible. If you really want to meet your, reach anybody, you've got to have them into your home. You've got to have them to taste the love that exists in your relationship and your family. So really then I want to conclude by just, just stepping back. Just stepping back and seeing the rich love of Christ. Before we get to imperative, let's remind ourselves of indicative. This whole chapter, chapter 12, chapter 12 said, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's incredible love, his steadfast love, his pure love, his passionate love, his persistent love, his gracious and generous love, his hospitable and uh, love drawn towards outsiders. As we see the great command to love brothers and sisters, let us see the beauty of Christ again. Let us see his beauty. Let us take up this call to embody this love between us because as we do so, we become a beautiful church that points to a beautiful saviour. But the way we start here is by coming back to the love of Christ. You know, it all started in a way with with Romans chapter 5, verse 5. His love has been poured into our hearts. If you feel a coldness or you feel like this love just feels massive and too big, I want to say start by encountering the love of Christ. Start by chewing over and tasting. The minute we'll have communion after, uh, and we'll get to taste, in a sense, his love. Come back to his love. Come back to his, his radical outsider-focused love. See his generosity. See his compassion for you. Receive it and then seek to embody it together. That is our calling, brothers and sisters. What an incredible privilege that we get to display the love of God in our community together. I'm going to pray for us. Band are going to come up. I think it'd be great in this first song just to, just to stay seated for a little moment, um, just to do business with God. There's probably a chance to repent for some of us where we feel like we've got the vision of love is far too small, but also just a chance to to receive from God, to invite him to come and speak to us. Let me do that. Lord, we are confronted by the power of your love. We've been liberated by your love. We celebrate the love that you've poured out on us. We thank you for the fact that we have received the love of the Son. Think about the Father. You have loved the Son for all eternity and we've been drawn into that love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your generosity. We thank you for your abundant hospitality that you draw us into the family. You say, come and eat at my table. Lord, we thank you for that love and we want to come and feast on your love now. To celebrate your love together to celebrate your grace to us and to worship you. 
Lord, we know we see this bold, grand vision of love and we know our lives fall radically short of this. We pray that we wouldn't be burdened by that, but we would be inspired by your example to us. That you are the great, <laughs> the great lover of those who did not love you. So Lord, we pray that we would be the same. Those who display your love to between us and to a watching world. Amen.